This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Welcome to Vibrant Raw Living. I'm your host, Victoria Madian. Join me on a journey of discovering your infinite potential. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I am so excited to have my guest, Melissa de Arabian from the Food Network. You guys may know her from Food Network Star, Guy's Grocery Games, or her New York best time selling books, $10 Dinners, and Supermarket Healthy. Her message and goal is is very centered around making healthy eating affordable and enjoyable. You guys may know her from there. However, I know her because one of her daughters is one of my students that I teach, and I am her dance instructor and choreographer. So thank you so much for being here, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a joy to see you, and it's fun that we get a chance to talk. I was going to say outside of the studio, but actually we just went from one studio to another. Yes. Because we're now also in a studio. (laughs) Correct. So I will now dance. No, just kidding. (laughs) We did have some fun a couple months back on your actual Mm -hmm. show that you have a Facebook live show that you do that's called It's Tuesday Night Somewhere, and we made some healthy smoothie bowls. So I will go ahead and link in the um, show notes below so that you guys can go check that out if you want. That was so much fun. We did have fun. And yeah. you were my first guest. Yeah. yeah it was Actually, I first get You've been my only guest. Yeah. That was only a month or two ago. So yeah. my only guest. Oh. Um, so anyway, thank you for coming down and doing that. That was really fun. I'm happy to have you here today. And I'm excited to share some of the things that you have been through in your life that have helped you become the amazing woman that you are today. You are very passionate about women's empowerment, obviously healthy eating, and and just overall health. So I want to start out by asking you where you grew up and where you were born and what were some of the experiences that kind of shaped you growing up? Well, it all started on a rainy night back in 1968. That no, was kidding. I was kidding. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Um, <laughs> I actually was uh, I was born in Mission Viejo, but I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents uh, met when they were um, freshmen and sophomore in college and got married in kind of a quickie wedding in Vegas, um, had my sister and me, and then um, and they were divorced right after, uh, shortly after I was born. So turns out those quickie weddings in Vegas don't, uh, don't always last as long as the vows say, say that they will. I grew up being raised by a single woman who was uh, putting herself still through college um, and then eventually medical school. So that that welcome to the world really informed everything who I am and who I am today. I think from those early years, I probably had two big two big obstacles, if you will, to clear. Um, I think I was only aware of one of them. And the first was that we were very poor. We, we had no money. I mean, we had no money. That influenced uh, what we ate and how we thought and our, and our way of living, for sure. The second obstacle that I had was that I was being raised by by a single parent, and I, I didn't really appreciate at the time what that meant because you only know what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, even when I, you know, growing up, I um, it took a while for me to catch on that we were poor because the people who lived next door to me also were relatively poor. You know, we uh, you know we we didn't live in a nice part of town necessarily, you know, um, but, um, but I kind of caught on. I caught on because, you know, you notice that you're bringing 
to school a different lunch than everybody else is bringing to school. So you start to notice these things. And um, and then you also have friends and you go and you spend the night at their houses and you see a cupboard that's filled in a way that your cupboard is not filled. Um, so you, you do get to learn that. And I do think that we take all of our experiences and, mm-hmm. you know, I really believe that the only way out of something is through it. Mm-hmm. And so those experiences really uh, shaped the mom that I am today, the person that I am today. So, and even really in the career that I'm in today, right? you know, the, the, the budgeting piece really comes naturally to me because it's, it's a, it's deep in my bones. Mm-hmm. It's deep in my bones to pay attention to what I'm spending. In, in regards to the food and the lunches, there was a woman in your childhood who helped you and really was kind of a catalyst for change in your life. There was a woman who really changed the trajectory of my life, and um, she has been a role model for me and has inspired me to reach out even when it's not necessarily always convenient. Mm-hmm. So um, so thank you for bringing her up. And the yeah. person you're talking about is the receptionist at the principal's office. When I was in elementary school, I hinted at before that I didn't always have a full lunch to take to school. And my mom, um, single mom in college and then you know eventually in medical school, she was overwhelmed. My mom loved us very, very much, very much. And I will say that my mom gave me the gift of belief in myself, mm-hmm. that I could do whatever I wanted. Right. My mom was becoming a doctor at a time when um, it wasn't as common for women to be doctors. And there are a whole slew of stories that kind of come with that. But my mom was the first uh, example of feminism for me as a young child, um, you know, back in the early 70s. So my mom was, um, you know— Full of good intention, but very overwhelmed and, you know, and and still almost a child herself. You know, she was in her early 20s going through this. So she had two daughters and no money. You know, my mom left home uh, herself when she was 17 and took a Greyhound bus across the country with 40 some dollars in her pocket. So she was really alone. She did not, she was not in communication with her parents or really even her family. Mm -hmm. So my mom was very overwhelmed. And so I think... As a result, I think, you know, things like packing lunches, that kind of stuff fell through the cracks and it was sort of put on our plate to do it. You know, at an age when most kids aren't packing their own lunches, I didn't realize that, you know, five-year-olds didn't pack their own lunches until I had a five-year-old and I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, what? I'm still cutting, you know, carrot sticks up in like little fun Mm -hmm. smiley shapes for you. Like, (laughs) you know, so um, a five-year-old should not be trusted to pack her own lunch. I would go to school and I sometimes wouldn't have... A full lunch, partly because I was in charge of packing it, and partly because there wasn't the food in the house. You know, sometimes you know there would be no lunch meat. We would get one envelope of lunch meat of like that, you know, that really mm-hmm. cheap pressed. It's like says chopped, pressed, and formed. You know, on the yeah. top of the label, and it's like one little thin envelope of like two ounces of meat. And I'm putting air quotes around the word meat. You know, of meat like product, and like that would be the envelope for the week for all three of us for lunches. So clearly, you know, we were allowed one of those thin slices, like there's slices that you can see through. That was like the allotment for a sandwich. So I would go to school without, without lunch sometimes, or just an apple. And, um, and then I discovered that at our school, that if you forgot your lunch, you were allowed to get a free lunch. And by free, they'd give you an IOU and you would then take it home and your parents would send in the 45 cents because uh, that's how much lunch cost back when I was in elementary school. Very quickly, I realized that I could have like this hot lunch and like my stomach could be full. Mm-hmm. And, and to feel the difference between an empty stomach growling in a classroom um, right. versus a full stomach of warm food – 
it was night and day. Mm-hmm. So I very quickly picked up on the fact that I should, um, I should, I should, <laughs> I should um, lie and say I forgot lunch. I should do it. Um, but it felt better to do that. And so I got in the habit of forgetting, you know, air quote, forgetting lunch and then getting these IOUs. And of course, I never took them home to my mom because one, I knew she couldn't pay them. Um, and two, I, I didn't want to upset her. I didn't want to shame her. Right. I thought it was, might shame her to realize that she couldn't pay back these IOUs. This, this sort of path of lying, I mean, these are small lies, I guess, but lying because you're hungry, I get that. Mm-hmm. I get that we we get so desperate that we'll lie. So I would lie. And the, the receptionist at the the principal's office caught on to this, called me into the office one day, and I thought, oh, you know, now it's all it's all over. I'm going to get into so much trouble, and they're going to call my mom, and she's going to have to leave school, and it's going to be a big mess, and I'm going to be in big trouble. But no, this receptionist, um, instead, she reached out to me, and she put me on this lunch program, whereby I would serve lunch, like I would be back there, like with like the cafeteria ladies and, um, you know, and I'd like wear like a hairnet and I'd like be in charge of like putting like, you know, the jello on the plates for the kids, you know, with like a, this like plastic glove and like we had like cubes of jello that I would pick up and put on the plates. So I would serve the kids lunch. And then when they went out for recess, I would get free lunch. You know, at the time that was back in the seventies, we didn't worry about like marginalizing, you know, the, the child who can't afford lunch. To me, it was awesome. I mm-hmm. thought I felt, I felt special. I really loved that I was working for my lunch. Right. That gave me a sense of, of accomplishment, of esteem. I felt special and and I also felt full. And that was really, really great. So that woman just reaching out to me um, filled my stomach for those um, middle, uh, those elementary school years. And I'll never know how much of my path of being changed by her um, really ended up impacting, you know, my eventual ability to get into college and, right. and get into, you know, graduate school and all of that. So the takeaway from that is that if we help people in a small way early on, you know, that we we really do change the very angle of the trajectory of their lives. And and that's a game changer. And I think that story is so inspiring to me being in the position that I am as a dance instructor mm-hmm. of the powerful change that I can have. Even if it's just subtle, you know, sharing with the students that I work with on a daily basis, just bringing them in fruits every once in a while and maybe like helping them to enjoy that and see that as something that they can treat themselves to or enjoy as well. It kind of made me see myself almost in that receptionist position. You know, I, you know, it's funny you say it because I see you in that. I yeah. see that power <laughs> of you and how you interact with the girls and and how they, they so look up to you and to, and, you know, the, the affirming messages, not that you just say, although you do say so many affirming, supportive, wonderful things to the girls that, that, that sink into their little brains and into their little hearts and, and they will believe those things for years to come, right? right. The messages we hear mm-hmm. when we're younger, um, but also in your actions. Your actions are affirming, um, affirming to them and also affirming to yourself. And what a great um, role model that is. You know, that's a, that's a word that's a little bit thrown around, but I really do believe that we teach our girls, yeah, our children, I guess. I just don't have boys. So I, I, my default is girls, and you don't happen to have any um, boys in the, the class that you <laughs> no. teach, Valentine. But, you know, boys too. We teach our, u- our youth 
how to treat ourselves and how to treat one another mm-hmm. uh, by what we say. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we instill in those beliefs. And right. you do that with your actions. You know, what did you, you brought in like loquats the other day yeah. or something, right? Didn't you? <laughs> I did. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even, you know, my, the other girls who came, because we came to pick up Valentine's, right, right. I had all four yeah. with me. So, you know, even they, they were, you know, getting all talking about, oh, they, you know, you're going to specialty produce. Make sure you get some loquats. We want to have them. <laughs> you know, so... That's a small thing. Yeah. It's a small thing until it's a big thing. Yeah. And we don't know which small thing is going to be the right. big thing. So right. we can just keep doing small yeah. things. And I think it's important to, and first of all, thank you. That's such like a humbling compliment for you to say all those wonderful things to me. I was not expecting that. But I think it is, it's wonderful to, like you said, share those small moments and mm. celebrate the small moments that we have in our life mm. too, because sometimes we can get caught up in things not being a certain way or not appreciating all the little things that it takes along the way to get to a different path of success, whether that be in our own life or for somebody else's in the helpful progression to that. So I'm really grateful to be a part of their life in any way. And if it's positive, then that's absolutely wonderful. So growing up through your high school years and how did things start to change in your life in regards to your interpersonal relationships and some of the goals and dreams that you were setting up for yourself well, I came out of, you know, elementary school and in that phase, um, you know, at that point my mom graduated from medical school. I remember going to her medical school graduation and seeing her with that little tassel. Um, and then, um, you know, then she still, you know, you still, still have a long way to go before you actually make any money as a doctor. Um, so she did, you know, her residency and then, um, you know, and uh, internship. But I, our financial picture changed, you know, sort of slowly morphed into um, something that was a little less um, dire. And then eventually by the time I was in high school, you know, my mom was a practicing physician. So, um, so our financial situation changed. In terms of of my personal um, journey, I was on that kind of type A academic path where, you know, I was probably going to go to law school or business school or, you know, something expected in that kind of um, space. At this point, we moved to um, to Bethesda, Maryland when I was in high school. And, and at that point, it was just my mom and me. My sister had um, moved in with my dad for high school years. So we kind of turned into this sort of duo, if you will, um, of really, I was a teenager and my mom was this still, you know, a, a young woman in her 30s. So a lot changed and yet nothing changes, right? Because everything can change and nothing, nothing changes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our financial picture was completely different. You know, our dynamic was a bit different because I was a teenager, you know, and then, you know, in high school, you know, normal sort of high school stuff. And that led me really in, into college. And at that point, I really kind of became an East Coaster. So I was really in, on, on the East Coast from 13 on until I was really in my mid-20s when I moved back to the West Coast. So I think that junior high and high school were what I would sort of call the typical years, if you will. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> we're watching um, we're watching the Gilmore Girls mm-hmm. with, with my girls. Have you seen that? Yeah. You, you know what it is. You know, yes. you, you know yes. the show, right? Um, and it's really about, it's about a single mom and her mm-hmm. teenage daughter. And it's really interesting for me to watch it. I watch it with my girls. But, you know, she's a single mom raising this, this daughter. And there's so much about that show that speaks to my childhood and my um, – 
in my high school years. Mm. And when I, you know, talk with my girls about that, they they want to know like, are are you as funny as Rory is? Was your mom funny like mm. Lorelai? Does she always make jokes? Did you guys have a diner you hung out? And I was like, yeah, well, not everything, but you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so I think that was kind of the vibe of yeah. like my um, my teenage and and becoming an adult mm-hmm. years. And so when you moved on to college, you were in a sorority. It was Alpha Chi Omega, right? I was in Alpha Chi Omega. I would love for you to speak to what that sisterhood meant to you. Because in my experience growing up, especially in the dance industry and with a lot of the other girls that I was around, being on dance team was a bit of a sorority-esque experience. Mm -hmm. I was on my varsity dance team all four years of high school. And there were there were a lot of things that went on. There was sometimes cattiness. There was sometimes clickiness. And it wasn't always the most supportive space. And I do remember times where I just wished that there could have been a little bit more camaraderie amongst us all. Even though that was there, it wasn't as if nobody got along with each other. However, I just feel like that empowering support of being there for one another was something that... I really would have loved to have at a younger age to have experienced that. What were some of the things that you experienced in the sorority and how were your fellow sisters there for you in times where you really needed them? Mm. You know, that's interesting because you saying that um, has me sort of going back and thinking about, you know, my sort of experience in early on in the sorority or early on in college as a, as a woman or a young woman, I think that I was so, um, you know, so self-involved and not because I was trying to be that way, but growing up is so hard. Right. And, you know, puberty's tricky mm-hmm. and it's emotional and it's all these things. And I felt a little bit like I was just so busy trying to keep my head above water that I don't know that I had the bandwidth to really sort of worry about anybody else. For sure. And, 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 I, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think that that's a fairly common experience. And in, I can relate to that yeah, as well. Yeah. 100%. It's, it's hard. Yeah. So I think that's, that may translate into, you know, a lack of connection. And, um, and when there's lack of connection, there's lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. And when there's lack of empathy, then we're sort of in this siloed experience. Um, and then throw in the fact that we have self-identity issues and we don't know who we are and where does our body end because, you know, I have hips and I didn't have them before. And, right. you know, and, um, and like literally, like physically, how do I, how much space do I take up anymore? And there's just so much going on that then when we're in this siloed space, we um, and we're uh, coupling that with lack of self identity and and then Dance, throw in yeah, yeah competition where <laughs> right. someone wins someone loses right. it's not ripe for um, for connection and empathy and support is right. it. So it's a tricky time, and I did not do um, anything like dance, yeah. um, as you well know. <laughs> um, you throw in the dance environment, and I can only imagine that being even trickier. So, you know, so I think back to like my early sorority experience, um, while we were all sort of in the same boat together of going off to college and there's a lot of socializing and whatever, there still is that sense of I'm still figuring out who I am. Um, and figuring out who we are, by definition, is an exercise of borders. Um, it's an exercise in differentiation. Um, and it's an exercise in comparison mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways, right. just because that's what all we know. Yeah. 
right? It's really hard to get a definition of something without comparison, really even now as an adult. And I don't mean that even necessarily in like a self-identity sort of way, just didn't, you know, um, you know, if you tell me, I don't know, I'm making it up, um, you know, Valentine comes home and says, oh, I did four pirouettes. I, I don't know. It's four a lot. <laughs> tell, you know, tell me what that is. Like, I need to know, like up until today, were you only doing two? Yeah. Were you doing three and a half? Were yeah. you doing seven? Because if yeah. you're doing seven and then today you only did four, four is not great. So <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm making something up. Right, but right, right. My point is, is that we need context. Yes. And context is um, trickily close to comparison. Mm-hmm. So we're seeking context as young adults, you know, and it's, it turns into comparison. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's tricky. When I was in college, I certainly was in that same space. There wasn't this sort of magical sense of, oh, I, I got to bypass all of that. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly who I was and mm-hmm. so did all my friends. And we just were there for one another. Right. I don't think that was the case. When I was a junior in college, uh, my mom passed away. And, and that sort of divided my life into two sections, sort of before and after. And so anything after, it, that really changed how I connected to people. Because um, I think that when, for me, you know, when the scaffolding of your whole life it just sort of caves in, right. you know, it's, you, you no longer have any tools, good tools and bad tools. You have no tools. You're just a mess and you'll cling to anything. So now I no longer was worrying about my siloed self and self-identity and whatever. It was just how am I going to get through the day? When we have such trauma, such loss, we let go of tools, both good and bad. But what we're left with is still an amazing ability to connect. Mm -hmm. Or we can build up those walls in the silo even stronger and, and sort of isolate out. So, you know, and, 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 and it's messy and there's a mix of all of that, right? right? It's never this sort of clean whatever. When we're talking in the context of women being supportive mm-hmm. and being being my helpers versus being my competition, right? I can divide that very neatly into before um, and after mom's death. One of the gifts of my mom's death. Now, my mom's death was awful and horrible and I would not I wouldn't trade it for the gifts that it gave but I did get some things out of it that made my life better and richer Mm -hmm. and I would trade all those in in a hot second to have my mom back to be a grandmother to her you know to to my kids of course but that's that's not a trade that I get to make so um, if I don't get to have my plan a I'm going to live the heck out of my plan B. Absolutely. So in my plan B, there are some gifts. And and one of those gifts was connection with women. Mm-hmm. And women and my sorority sisters in particular really taught me that lesson early on because my mom died by suicide. And in the world of suicide deaths, there's no, there's no insurance money. There's no, you know, there are logistically a lot of... There are a lot of snags mm-hmm. that happen um, in, in the world of suicide. So I, I had no money. I had no money. And I was at, you know, one of, you know, the uh, most expensive colleges that, you know, that there was. So I needed to pay tuition. I had, I had no way to do any of these things. And I had no living expense. I, I had no money. My sorority sisters um, invited me to move back into the house and that the sorority would cover my expenses so that I wouldn't be alone for those few months after my mom died. And I, I just remember how taken aback I was by that generosity mm-hmm. that 
these women would do that. Right. And there wasn't a space for me. I mean, the house was full. I had to, like, I lived, it was like a, like a, that's called a tree, not a trio. That's a dance. It's like a, um, a triplet, like the triplet room. The room was a triplet room. And they, like, found it, like, had a couch or whatever. And, like, I, you know, it wasn't like there was, like, an empty space. And they were like, oh, here, go ahead and take it. No, they created space for me and fed me and let me sleep there. And, like, I mean, I was an inconvenience for sure. And I was never made to feel that way. And that was the first time where I really understood, oh, you know, when 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 the stuff hits the fan, these these women, these women are here to connect with me. Right. And that was the first time I'd had that. And um and I that changed my life. That connection Absolutely. changed my life. It changed the way I feel about women. And how has that inspired you in other endeavors? Because I know that you've gone on to do women's empowerment camps and things like that. I think within the past couple months, mm-hmm. you got an experience with that. Was it in Malibu? Yeah, yeah. in Camp Empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love Camp Empowerment. Yeah, that's a women, women's empowerment um, uh, camp. It's run by a um, a wonderful woman named Tammy who used to be a producer over at the Today Show mm. and then kind of left it all to create this vision of women um, women uh, summer camp weekends. So, um, yes, I love Camp Empowerment. It is life-changing, life-changing. Um, I go, I've go. i gone twice now as an expert, mm-hmm. and but I get as more out of it than, than, I do, um, than I do give. It has completely changed my life. Connecting with women after my mom died showed me the power of what happens when women connect together mm-hmm. and when women see each other as as our best cheerleaders um, rather than our biggest competition. I think that with women, you know, before the crisis, before before all of that, I think if I saw a, a successful woman, I really saw that as, oh, that's success she's having and I'm not. Um, now I think, or, you know, after, you know, after the crisis, I really, really in my gut started to see if a woman had success I saw that as possibility. Mm-hmm. If she can do it, then I can do it too. Right. And that changes everything. Absolutely. It enabled me to add a sentence to my repertoire of sentences of things that I say that has completely changed my life, which is the following. Oh, really? Educate me on that. I'm so interested. I used to have such a hard time admitting I didn't know something, Mm -hmm. even if it would be totally normal for me not to know it. Because I felt like, oh, if someone else knows it, especially if it's a woman, then, you know, then there's like this, ah, then I got to show them how much I know or whatever. You know, I am now very okay with not knowing everything. And I am okay with people having different kinds of success than than I do. And it's like, it's okay. And celebrating that. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and not, not, um, clenching, you know, my fists and celebrating it because it's the right thing to do. But really celebrating the abundance of this world yeah. and and sinking into that, being less afraid of being found out for the fraud that I am. You know, because don't we all have a little bit of that sense of like, I mean, uh-oh. those lunches when you're younger, Melissa. Right, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> But I think we all have that, yeah. you know, whether we're young or whether we're, yeah. you know, it's part of, old, but it's, yeah. It's part of being human mm-hmm. is that none of us go through this without experiencing a few ups and a few downs and seeing how we can grow from that. 
I, I really am glad to see that these women had a wonderful impact in your life. How do you feel like some of the things that you've learned as you've connected with women, how can we bring that into young girls who may be comparing one another to each other? And during those kind of teenage years where it can be very difficult to mm. find our own center and believe in what our gifts are and see those in another person and really cheer them on. Mm. You know, um, that's such a, a rich and important question. Uh, that I that I won't have a worthy answer um, for, um, but I will. Um, I'll, I'll give you some ideas and some thoughts. Um, I really do believe the saying um, that comparison is the thief of joy, and um, you know, and it's tricky because you know my kids are now getting to be of the age, and the girls at the studio are all kind of in this age where they they all want social media and they all want you know, and it's tricky because um, you know they the studies are out there and they're pretty conclusive. Um, social media makes us less happy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and now I'm supposed to take a 13 year old who is sort of, you know, primed for unhappiness because of puberty and growing up and it's tricky and middle school's hard and academics and competitions and whatever. And now, you know, at 13, now we're going to layer in uh, the additional stress and burden of social media, like that's tricky because, you know, all, all of them are all like 13. I almost feel like, ah, oh, you know, if I'd known then what I know now, I would have like had, I would have given my kids all social media at eight when they're too young to care or notice, get it out of their system so that when 13 comes along, they'd be like, mom, Instagram, so boring, you know, <laughs> but now they're like, no, I want Instagram because they haven't been able to have it. Right. So how do we do that? You know, it's, it's a daily thing, isn't it? Um, and I have four daughters who are, as you know, very close in age. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time and energy on uh, validating um, individually and not just corporally, um, you know, just sort of lumping them all together and saying, right. you guys are all, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, you're all misbehaving. No, you're all behaving well or, you know, whatever it mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. right? Um, or, you know, we 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 love family time. We're very um, we're very family focused in, in our home, um, but I don't want to confuse that for one on one time. Absolutely, because I need to be I need to know how to celebrate each daughter for her specialness and have it not be um, about who she is necessarily in the group. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so there are sort of a few things that we do. I don't know that these are the fixes for the world, but I can tell you what we do. In our house, we um, are very big on one-on-one -on -one dates with the, you know, my husband has those one-on-one -on -one dates, Philippe, um, and I have one-on-one -on -one dates with, with our kids. And it's it's hard to schedule. Luckily, with Valentine, we get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time because the studio is so far from our house. <laughs> so we actually do get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. Um, we still have to be careful not to just sort of count you know, the hours we're in a car with her as the time. But I will say, we have a lot of great conversations. Mm -hmm. And also because of competition, we go away together a lot. So each daughter, I kind of have to carve out that time and be creative, even if it's just, oh, let me take you to Starbucks or mm -hmm. let's walk the dog around the block or, you know, or, um, you know, there are certain daughters that I cook with in a certain way, like Ocean, she makes French toast. So sometimes the two of us mm -hmm. will make French toast for everybody. You know, that's not, it's not everything, but it's, it's 20 minutes of just one-on-one -on -one time. Absolutely. And so we're very deliberate about that awesome. um, and celebrating each yeah. individual. Um, I think that 
in terms of what we can do sort of as a society yeah. with our girls, um, I think that we can be very careful about the kind of language we use around around girls, you know, and the questions that we ask them, you know, um, you know, for instance, I think we, you know, and this is, again, this is stuff that feels right for me. Everyone has to do what feels right for them. But I'm very careful about lots of comments, evaluative or evaluative, I guess, comments. You know, even, I'll just give you an example. Somebody does a dance on, at the studio, you know, a competition, you know, rather than having my first words out of my mouth being like, oh my gosh, you looked great. You did great. You know what? I think that's very different from, wow, you know, how did you feel up there? Those are, those are, Two very excited, supportive statements. But I think if we're careful about not saying you looked great, you know, that gets into our minds, mm-hmm. all of our minds, mm-hmm. that the looks was more important than how you felt. So even little things like that, yeah. little shifts in language. I'm also, I once read this somewhere that, and I can't remember where, and it was, it seemed like good advice and it was from a good source, but I don't remember because I read it so long ago. But in parenting, um, I, I thought this was good advice, was um, I separate out the I love you sentiment from any sort of results-based comment Absolutely, um, because kids will link them together. For instance, you know, oh my gosh, you know, uh, what a beautiful picture you drew, Susie. Oh, I love you. You know, little Susie is actually hearing, you know, oh, she loves me because I drew a picture. Right. Um, Now, one time, I guess that probably doesn't matter, but over and over and over again, Absolutely. according to the experts, mm-hmm. not according to me, that matters. So one thing I'm very deliberate about is the language I use with my girls and also the language I use with um, the girls that are around me. I think another thing that we do that I think is – that has proven to be something that it was just proven to – provide dividends in terms of my girls' growth, um, is that I am very deliberate about including women, female role models in their lives. In other words, I'm okay with not being their only role model. They will get a lot out of me, but I want them to, you know, go to their dance instructor or to go to their teacher or go to one of their best friend's mom's and know that they can confide Mm -hmm. there. I want my girls to be surrounded by other role models right. that aren't not just me because um, otherwise they're just getting my perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, societally we can do that. I um, mean, I think also as parents and as somebody I'm pointing to you as, as influence over, over children and youth, you know, watching, watching how we talk about ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, becoming a parent really changed the way I view you know, particularly body issues, right. and, you know, and and it really made me realize becoming a parent makes me realize that I have higher standards for my daughters than I do for myself, and that's a that's sort of a sobering reality. I want to honor myself as much as I honor my daughters. So having daughters has raised my game for self care for me and self honoring for me, and I really do believe that if we don't take time for self care and self honoring, we'll steal it back later. We will we will be snippy or snippy, you know. And I find if I am or snippy, it will be taken from us in different ways too. It will yeah. be, and and we'll take it back, right? Won't we? In in ways that are not pleasant. Mm-hmm. So I I having four daughters has really raised my game for um, for honoring myself as a woman and honoring the gift that is right. my life and my uh, my womanhood. Right. So those are just some thoughts.
And I mean, being a woman that's in the media, you're on television and your appearance is something that people mm -hmm. see all the time. There's a difference between Melissa waking up and going to the rehearsal or the studio ready to be filmed versus Melissa on camera, right? And I can attest to this too. It's like different waking up in the morning and being on stage for competition or being in rehearsals. Comparing that to social media, there's a lot of filters that get put on and people think that what they see in the limelight is what people are like all the time and what kind of confusion that can cause. I think in my experience, I've been really grateful to be more 99% of the time behind the scenes. And that 1% mm -hmm. is where all of the everything kind of comes together and you got the makeup and the costume on and stuff. But there's so much behind that that helps to create that experience and that that work and all of the help that's received behind the scenes in our lives from our family and our friends and from the people that we work with sometimes doesn't always get shown and sometimes people forget that there mm -hmm. is such a community of support around that and how important it is to have that in our life. But in regards to, you know, the behind the scenes versus the on camera and how that applies to life in the sense that you may see somebody some way, but behind the scenes, they're just kicking back or they're working really hard in certain areas to improve that polished image isn't always what's going on. And sometimes there are a lot of other things going on in people's lives that we can maybe not see. I think you're right. And, you know, to go with your your um, your metaphor of the, the dance competitions, um, you know, it's interesting because um, my other daughters have gone to see Valentine, um, you know, in competitions. And obviously there's these costumes and it's makeup and it's all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and I remember a few years ago, you know, one of my daughters was like, oh, but I want to, I want to do that. You know, and I, and, and, you know, really once we explored it, yeah, she really wanted to be in the costumes. She <laughs> wanted, she wanted the eyeballs. She mm -hmm. wanted, she wanted to be dressed up and wear the right. makeup and what, which is, you know, Fine and fun, mm -hmm. but it's um, it's a very different thing. I will tell you this with 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 Valentine, my dancer. Um, I should say, and Marco does dance as well, but mm -hmm. the one that uh, Valentine is the uh, my competitive dancer. So with Valentine, um, like with this the competition thing, I think we can. That's a great metaphor for sort of life or for like social media versus real life. So I think that these are, these parallels are all very um, you know are very strong and right there. So with Valentine, you know, yes, there are these competitions that they go and they dress up for and they do whatever. 99% of the experience of being a competitive dancer um, happens in the studio. And it happens, you know, like with Valentine, she goes to school for, you know, whatever, six and a half hours. She races home. She walks in the door. She, you know, eats a quick bite to eat and then like gets right to homework and tries to knock out her homework in, you know, in an hour or whatever. It's like two hours of homework that she does in an hour. And she, you know, she's just trying to get it done. And then like, literally it's like, Valentine, we got to go. You know, she's yep. like throwing in her ballet bun, like, right, you know, racing out there. She goes to the studio and then she'll dance for five hours at the studio, you know, without a break. And but by her choice, no one's yeah. making her. You Reminds know, me of my childhood. <laughs> yeah. And she then, you know, gets in the car at 9 or 9.15 at night, you know, and we have a, you know, 35-minute drive home. Mm -hmm. And she gets in the car, and I've made her dinner. She has her thermos and her whatever. She gets in the car, and she's, like, eating. Like, oh, yeah. She's so hungry. And I will tell you something. She's had, you know, a 14- or 15-hour day mm -hmm. of go, go, go. And she mm -hmm. does this, you know, day in and day out 
week in and week out and year in and year out. Yep. And I will tell you this, and this is the only this is the reason why we make dance such a priority for her is because when she gets in that car at 9.15 after 15 hours of like crazy – and she's been doing this since she was itty-bitty, right? She gets in that car and is having dinner for the first time. She is her best person. Mm-hmm. She – I in years of doing this, yeah. never has she gotten in the car at 9.15 and been in a bad mood mm-hmm. or been like, ugh, or I'm exhausted yeah. or complained. Yeah. She's at her best best and she's at her best when she comes out of the studio there's a very big difference between her being at her best when she's in makeup on stage and versus being her best when she comes out of the work right and and that's true in life Mm -hmm. you know we we all want to create the stage moments but the stage moments happen for two or three minutes life is in the studio Life isn't on the stage. And it's in the now, too. It's in the now. It's in the six hours of sweat. And, you know, life is what's happening when you're not in false eyelashes. <laughs> you know? And that's why I do It's Tuesday Night Somewhere. Because I'm yep. like, I, it's great. I, I have nothing against the false eyelashes mm-hmm. and the performances and the whatever. And there's beauty in that. And I love it. Yeah. That's great. It's fun to get glam. <laughs> it's super. It's great. Just the same thing in TV, same right. thing in my life. Yeah. It's great to do TV, and I love it as a platform to get to connect with people. Mm-hmm. But the work yeah. is not is not in the eyelashes. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. The joy is not in the eyelashes. The joy is in the studio. The joy is in the sweat. Whatever your studio mm-hmm. is, whatever whether it's dancing or whether whatever it is, and so we we. We get into this world where we're like, yeah, yeah, but I wanna, I wanna social media this out and get, you know, and we get so confused. We spend so much time and energy on the makeup job for the two minutes on stage, which is important. Don't get me wrong. But, and then we're not, we're ignoring the 92 hours of studio time it took to get to that mm-hmm. stage for two minutes. Right. So it's really important for us to be reminded that it's about, it's about the studio time. Right. It's not about the it's not about the the glossy eyelash time. Right. You know, it's it's really about both. So mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you say that because I remember when I was at competitions, sometimes they give away special awards. Mm-hmm. And one that I would consistently get, I grew up very, being very tall and very slender. My mother is six feet tall, so mm-hmm. I just that just happened to be my genetics. But I would get an award all the time of like, you know, the gorgeous whatever, you know, special award from the judges really commenting on my appearance. It's like even if I scored well in my division and my category and on overalls or whatever, that would be something that I would constantly get. And I couldn't help but notice that I would get compliments from other people based on my appearance. It did kind of make me conscious of that. And I'm grateful that my mother, she's she's from the Midwest, grew up on a farm, In Wisconsin and is very humble, very down to earth, not wrapped up in her appearance at all. And I feel it kept me pretty grounded through that whole experience and realizing that like my training and my technique was what was, you know, needed to be the emphasis. And although I was getting a lot of comments about that type of thing, that that's not what dance was about and that I should not get too wrapped up into it, even though I was getting a lot of attention for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I even grew up with mostly boys. I have an older brother, and our two closest friends are, are you know, the boys that I grew up playing with are 
like younger brothers to me and we would always be I would always be playing video games with them and skateboarding and all that type of stuff and I found a lot of you know camaraderie in them and kind of grew up as, with doing some tomboy stuff as well to balance out all the glitz and the glam but um I appreciated that balance and I appreciated the um the aspect of just being like yeah I don't need to be dressed up all the time it's mm-hmm. okay people can accept me even if I'm skateboarding down the street on my back and we got full body padding on and just going for it you know just hanging out and doing whatever the guys are doing it's like I could still be accepted without all the makeup on without you know teeny tiny costumes with rhinestones all over them so I think it's important to have those experiences where you feel accepted in other realms other than just Mm -hmm. being held up on a pedestal all the time of being like no this is what good is and you know because sometimes when we see other people achieve certain levels of success or being rewarded for certain types of behaviors or presenting themselves a certain way, Mm -hmm. we can think, oh, that's what I need to Mm -hmm. do in order for people to view me well. But I really think that the wonderful thing we all have as human beings is that we are all unique and we don't have to try to do anything in order to celebrate that uniqueness other than just be ourselves and be our authentic self. And you know what? One thing I love that I think that um, I know that Valentine has gotten um, out of out of competition. By the way, I just love the idea of um, Victoria as the tomboy. I love that. I love. I love that. That's like like oh yeah. Like we have so not a tomboy vibe in our house. I'm like I gotta I gotta work that in somehow. But um, um, but one of the things that I love that we've gotten out of competition is because the awards are like mm-hmm. so much like they're they're far away from. It's not like you get a score right after you dance. Right. Is what I'm saying. Um, I love that. How. How a girl – I'll keep it to my own daughter. I love that how Valentine feels about her dance has to do with how she feels when she gets off stage. Mm-hmm. In other words, she can decide how she felt. Does she feel like it went well? Did she disappoint herself? And all of those things are really valid um, responses as an artist, as, as anybody who's putting anything out there in this world. Um, and I, I think they're all valid um, responses. But I love that it's – it's not in the hands of the judges. Mm-mm. She gets to decide. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, then when they go and they have the, the awards section and then they sort of get to hear kind of confirmation, if you will. Right. Um, and, you know, listen, sometimes is there a disappointment and whatever. You know, sometimes that can tweak the response. But what I love is that my daughter is deciding for herself. She is evaluating her own contribution to the world. And sometimes that's disappointing, and sometimes she feels great. And sometimes she feels great and then get, and then doesn't get the award that she wanted. And you know what? That's okay. Right. And sometimes she's disappointed in her own work, and then next thing you know, the right. judges loved it, and right. she gets a better. And, hey, listen, that takes a little sting out of the wound. But what I'm glad for is that she's already processed it. So by the time awards come around, it's sort of like icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. It doesn't define the cake. And I wanted to share something with you that I did that may horrify you. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly will probably horrify my daughter. But do you know what I did last year? Um, I was cleaning out my closet to, like, do a donation. I um, What I usually do is I, like, okay, stuff that I don't wear or whatever. Or, like, oh, let's try it on. Make sure, you know, I still like it or mm-hmm. it fits or whatever. Um, and I started to, like, kind of go back and forth from the closet to the mirror. And I had this radical idea, which was what if – I curated my closet, and I'm using the word curated very loosely because you know how I dress. I wear like the same th- three things over and over and over again. Like clothes is not just not my thing. Um, what if I curated my closet 
without a mirror. <laughs> so I literally put everything on and decided how do I feel wow. in it versus do I look, you know, good in it? Does my butt look big? Or you know, you know, all these things that are such a slippery slope mm -hmm. into um into a world that I don't want to be in. Right. Um, and I did it based on how I felt. Yeah. You know, and that was sort of the same thing that I ask my daughter to do when she goes up and dances, right? You decide for yourself how Absolutely. you feel. This is between you and God and how you want to share your art with the world. Absolutely. You know, yes, technique and, you know, technique will be a tool to help you communicate better because if your technique is better, you can do more things. Mm -hmm. But that's up to you. So I took that own sort of perspective, if you will, and decided, okay, I'm going to pick my clothes based on how they make me mm -hmm. feel. Um, so now you know why nothing really matches. Um, but um, anyway, so it was kind of like a radical sort of new idea, and, um, and I actually I liked it. That's awesome. And I think one thing I do always emphasize to the girls is that each competition is going to be a totally different experience. The judges are going to be offering mm -hmm. different criticism. They come from different backgrounds. They have a different scoring system. So the best thing we can do is take the critiques that are given regardless of whatever kind of trophy they get or mm -hmm. any of that. The main purpose of putting yourself through the competitive experience is Putting yourself out there saying, this is what I've practiced. This is what I've done. Let me know your thoughts so I can improve. Mm -hmm. And that's really all it is. And I think, you know, the competitive aspect of being a competitive dancer should really be internal. It should be, how can I be better than I was the last time? Or how can I improve and get new corrections? Because we always have areas to improve on in our life, no matter what that is. So it's just a tool for them to be able to experience that mm -hmm. and also um, grow an emotional kind of comfort with dealing with taking that criticism yeah. and not taking it too personal and mm -hmm. seeing it as this is meant to help me and learning to discern the things that are not, you know, necessary. If But oftentimes what the judges do offer as commentary is not emotionally charged. It's not personally charged. It's very objective and they have set of and I have experience judging myself as well but it's it's very objective in the sense that where is this dancer now what could they do to improve to become even more authentic to themselves and be an even better dancer on stage and let more of that energy come out within inside of that performer and I think hearing hearing criticism hearing feedback um, and not getting too emotionally charged about it yeah. is really an important life skill. Totally. And you've had experience with that, you know, being a New York best time seller. And I'm sure that you've had critics review your book and hear all types of stuff. But how is that something that's helped you grow? Well, I think that um, getting getting criticism, getting feedback is, is something that's going to happen our whole lives. Mm -hmm. You know, whether we're in a corporate job or whether we're, you know, um, out in the public eye. Um, I think that, you know, there's sort of a distinction to be made, which is, you know, kind of considering the source of the criticism, right? So being in the public eye invites all sorts of criticism that I frankly ignore. I just, it's, I, there's just kind of a crazy internet mm -hmm. world that I, I just don't choose to be part of. That said, if there is, um, you know, my husband, I, I don't, I don't Google myself. I don't, I just don't get into that. <laughs> um, but my husband has a Google alert on me. 
And he will sort of sift through if there's sort of like any kind of, you know, commentary or whatever. If there's a comment that's coming up over and over and over again, I actually sort of have to say to myself, listen, I'm going to take away the fact that I don't love who said it or how it was said, but maybe, maybe they're onto something. Maybe they're seeing something that I'm not. Absolutely. And and that balance of accepting in feedback without defining ourselves by what other people think right. is a very, um, that's a precarious balance. And that's a life skill that is, it's really hard to develop. And I think that the girls in dance competition are getting that because Absolutely. they can, you know, they're, they're, they're training themselves to have their own opinion of their own work. Then they're also getting feedback later on something and then having to improve upon it. And, um, and they're, they're also getting the skill of being disappointed and not getting their feelings too hurt and moving on. But you also know? letting that motivate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 there's a school of thoughts. Some people say, well, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks. I mean, right. I'm my own person. And I, you know, and I think, well, okay. You know, some of that I think is valid. Like, you know, you just worry about you. Great. You know, don't worry about people pleasing. Totally agree. However, when there are a bunch of people who are sort of saying the same thing um, or somebody who really knows you and loves you and knows what they're talking about, when they have feedback, whether it be about dance or about life or about, you know, you know, the the woman you decided to marry or whatever, like whatever, any sort of big decision. I mean, if there's, you know— there's something to be said for saying, huh, let's just pause for a second. Are they seeing something that I'm not mm-hmm. um, because I'm too close to it? Yeah. And that balance is sort of tricky. And I think um, having an open mind about things is something that's kind of helped me also be mm-hmm. comfortable. I think for me, I've really sought out a lot of constructive criticism. You know, if my teacher is giving me c- constructive critiques, that means that they believe in me and that they believe in my ability to apply those critiques and get better or else why would they waste their energy on it? So even when I started my yoga practice, I would ask my instructors, oh, like how can I do this or that better because I wanted to improve and I wanted their feedback. So I think when we approach life in the sense where we seek the constructive critique, not necessarily wanting to do things to impress upon people and be like, oh, like I want to do mm-hmm. it just how you want it just so you can accept me type of thing, but really doing it from a sense of like, I want to do this for myself growth and be the best that I can be. And I respect this person's opinion and would like their feedback on it, even if it may be a bit harsh. I feel like that did really allow me to incorporate a lot of really meaningful mentors in my life Mm -hmm. and kind of cross pollinate a lot of different opinions, which kind of helped my garden, if you will, of knowledge be a little bit more diverse. And I think that it's it's helpful to have that, and I'm grateful for the experience that I had as a young child doing a lot of the dance competitions for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that you are very passionate about feeding people in such a way with your knowledge, with food, and keeping it affordable, too, given your background. And I... I personally am a raw vegan, and we've had fun in the kitchen making raw vegan recipes together. But one question that I often get from people is how do they afford eating plant-based? And with your experience budgeting cooking, how would somebody be able to afford eating a plant-based diet, or is it as expensive as people think it is? I think it's a myth. 
that people want to believe that it is more expensive to buy whole foods than it is to buy processed foods. The the simple truth is in a supply chain um, that every time someone touches your food, they're going to take a piece of the pie, you know, meaning financial pie. Mm-hmm. They're going to charge money. Right. So a potato that is, you know, lying in, you know, at the grocery store in the produce aisle, um, that cost per pound, once that potato gets pulled out and gets scrubbed and gets chopped up and gets fried up and, you know, into a potato chip and gets salted and then put into a bag and then somebody pays for the labeling for the bagging and then the sealing of the bag and then somebody has to go market that bag and, um, you know, put it on TV and they've got to get my potato chip and not your potato chip. <laughs> I promise you the way economics works, mm-hmm. that potato is now more expensive. So this notion that people are touching your food and processing them for you and charging you less than what it would cost for you to buy that whole ingredient and you cook it yourself or process it yourself or not cook it yourself in the case of the raw vegan, um, is it's a myth. That, that's just not how finance works. Right. It just The economics don't yeah. work that way. It is always cheaper to have it as a whole food than it is going to be to have it as a processed food when you look at it on a per pound basis. Now, here's the thing. In a big, huge bag of potato chips, I mean, a big bag for lots of people, you know, there might be what, it's like, what, five ounces, you know, of food in there. And of those five ounces, how much of that's oil? Probably, let's just say a third of that. Let's just say no. three ounces of potatoes. That's a quarter pound. So you think, oh, I got a bag of potato chips. A big, it was on sale for two ninety nine or mm-hmm. two bucks. Yeah. Whatever. It's on sale for a buck. Whatever it is. Let's just let's just say it's a buck. I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen a big, huge bag of potato chips for a dollar, but let's just call it a dollar for a moment, just to get the math simple and really obvious. Okay, that's a dollar for three ounces of potatoes, right? Maybe two ounces of oil. I'm making those numbers up, but let's just. It's somewhere in that world, right? Roll with us, people. Yeah. So now three ounces. Well, you know, now it's a dollar for three ounces. So that's the same thing as $4 a pound. When was the last time you paid $4 a pound for a potato? I'm sorry. Never. Never. You would never pay $4 a pound for a potato, for like a russet plain old potato. Like, no. So this idea that it's cheaper. Here's the thing. People might see a bag of 10 pounds of potatoes and it's $2.79. And then they walk to the potato chip aisle and they see a bag of potatoes, you know, potato chips on sale for, you know, $1.99 or whatever. They're like, oh, the potato chips are cheaper. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Do a little bit of fourth grade math here with me. Like, <laughs> just calculate it out. So it 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 drives me a little bit bananas that we have this 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 myth that processed food is cheaper than whole foods. Now. That said, there is there there are some exceptions to this rule, which I think are the problem, if you will, like the real problem. Um, one is we do have, um, we, you know, corn syrup is subsidized. So corn syrup ends up being cheaper than what it actually is, mm-hmm. right? So corn syrup is cheaper for companies to use than, um, you know, other other sweeteners. So there's there's an artificial um, depression of some processed food pricing. Mm-hmm. So it's actually... The government is, you know, in subsidies is picking up the tab on some of that. So there is that element. The other element will be there'll be the loss leaders done by mostly fast food, mm-hmm. you know, like the dollar menus or the whatever. Right, right. They're doing that to get you into the window and then you buy other stuff and then they make their money. Mm-hmm. 
And they do that to get you to love them. And the next thing you know, you're a uh, consumer and you're buying stuff, not and just the an addict. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cons- yeah. consumer slash addict. Right. Um, but so in, in all fairness, um, there are some exceptions to that rule that in general, whole foods are going to be cheaper mm-hmm. than processed foods because people don't touch your food and then and then charge you less money for it. They just don't do that. That's just in general not how it works. So here's the thing. The bank is not being broken in the produce aisle. Mm -hmm. That's just the reality. Mm -hmm. If you stay away from the, you know, peaches in January or what, you know, and you celebrate the in-season stuff, you're going to come out okay, financially speaking. Um, The meat, the protein, and I'm using protein and meat interchangeably here, but I know in the case especially of um, vegans, that's that's not true. But the protein is usually going to be the most expensive part of the plate. Um, And the most expensive protein that's out there is meat. Mm -hmm. So by removing meat, you know, people ask, can I eat plant-based and still do it on a budget? You're removing the most expensive part of the meal. Mm -hmm. So, like, you got a lot of wiggle room there. And now if on top of it you really focus on what's in season Mm -hmm. and just walk into the produce aisle and say, what's in season, what's cheap? Mm -hmm. Because the answer is the same. Whatever's cheap is also what's in season. That's the beautiful thing about the produce aisle. The produce aisle is that whatever's in season is what's best quality and it's also the most reasonably priced. So there you go. It's right there. It's – you're not going to break the bank by eating plant-based food. That's not the mm-hmm. problem. It's like when the world stopped eating tomatoes because of sugar in it and they wanted to lose weight. <laughs> I'm sorry. You did not get fat because you ate too many tomatoes. <laughs> right. That is not your problem. No. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same thing, right? We're focusing on the two minutes on stage, not the six hours in the studio. Mm-hmm. The six hour in the studio is that you're eating, that you're going, you know, having – Frappuccinos with unicorn crazy colors. Like, and that's what we're doing every day. The 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 six hours in the studio is what we do 90% of the time. And we focus on like, oh, the tomato has so many calories and so many grams of sugar in it. It's like, how many tomatoes are you eating that that has made you gain 20 pounds? I'm right. just curious. Yeah, yeah. Most of us, it's not enough. Right. You know? So, um, so this idea of that, oh, plant-based, oh, the it's so expensive to buy produce and whatever. You know, really? Because I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that you bought a $4 per pound potato in the potato chip aisle. That's what I think mm-hmm. is the problem. I don't think your problem is the produce aisle. I really don't. The other thing I will say about spending money on groceries and um, and eating well is, you know, I don't think you have to spend a lot of money. I mean, you, you know, if you go in with this idea of like, no, I really want to have X, Y, Z ingredient and I want it today and this is, and it's not on sale, but I'm buying it anyway. Well, then, yeah, you're going to spend mm-hmm. more money. Mm-hmm. But if you're flexible and you walk into the store and sort of say, oh, you know what? Oh, organic carrots are on sale. I'm buying a ton. And guess what? We're having, you know, carrot soup that I'll freeze for next week. Right? Like if you let that be your guide. Mm-hmm. If you're a little bit flexible, right? Um, and you can be with produce because it's it's a lot easier to be yeah. flexible with produce than say with meats because they um, respond so differently. If you're a little bit flexible, you can eat well. Here's the other thing I'm going to say about spending money on our food is, <laughs> let's keep in mind you you can walk by a you know a five packages for a dollar packages of like ramen whatever with right, all right. sorts of stuff in it, mm-hmm. right? You know, the MSG packets and the whatever. Here's the problem is eating on a budget is not just about the price that is scanned on the counter when you walk out the door. It really has to do with how you're nourishing your body. Absolutely. So price per nutrient 
the ramen noodles are a horrible deal mm -hmm. because you're getting just about nothing. Now, hey, listen, if it's your little guilty pleasure and you want to indulge, by all means, go right ahead. But don't do it because you think you're getting food at a good price and you're doing anything that's healthful for your body right. or helpful or, or budget conscious. Because here's the thing. Once you eat ramen noodles, you know, and, and not all, I'm sure that there are some that are good. So I'm not trying to knock the ramen noodle industry, but I'm talking about the kind that we had in college. Mm -hmm. You still got to go out and buy ingredients because you haven't gotten your vitamins, you haven't gotten your fiber, you haven't gotten your right. protein. So so that's all extra. That kind of doesn't count. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't count toward your food. It's so like a food-like It's a food-like substance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't count. So you got to, you got to, you know, I say read the labels or buy food that doesn't have labels. Sure. There are a whole slew of external costs mm -hmm. that people aren't calculating when they are buying their food. Right. And they need to think about the fact that when they buy the ramen, they still they, they still need to buy something else because that's not a meal. And um, to take care of their health also. And then we don't have the health costs. Right. So, you know, we, we all these external costs, they cost, you know, now will cost to our environment. Cost, you know, all these other costs are, um, are sort of, um, they're external costs, so they're not wrapped up in the in, in the price that you pay at the supermarket. So that sounds like I would be like, oh, so spend whatever you have to. I don't. But I, I also realize that we live in this world where we think that we should be able to get something for nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, that we, you know, we want a magic bullet to solve all of our problems. We want to eat healthy, not spend money, not spend any time on it. And not have to exercise. We're not, we're not. We all want to be skinny without exercise, right? You know, I mean, that's everywhere, right? The promise, the, the promise we dangle everywhere is that you don't, you don't have to worry about your health we will manage it for you by some magical something. For sure. You know, and 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 so I am a little bit of a deliverer of bad news, which is you, you got to a little bit step up and take care of yourself. For sure. You can't like, just wear the false eyelashes. You got to no. do, put in the hours in the studio you got, and you eat You got to be in the studio, yeah. right? <laughs> like life is, like life is studio moments. It's not stage moments. For sure. So, you know, uh, now that said, are there some sort of, simple shortcuts and is there good news with you know yeah there's some simple recipes that can make you feel good and you know and, and aren't too expensive and well, absolutely that's the business i'm in totally. that's that's what i live for and what are um, some of the ingredients that you like to use because oftentimes people say oh like plant-based food is so bland like what do you suggest people use in regards to different things to amplify or make their food a little bit tastier if they are eating plant-based you know, that's a, um, a really interesting question um, that could have a million answers because yeah. different people like different things, yeah. Yeah. right? You know, some people are like, oh, it, the plant-based food, what I'm missing is cheesy Italian food or mm -hmm. whatever. And so kind of how to how to do that and deliver on that promise is sort of a different answer from like, for me, my mind immediately goes to, I love, I like like ethnic, like I love like Indian flavors. Mm -hmm. I love, you know, some of my favorite ingredients and spices to have around or like, I always have coconut oil around. Um, like I can put a little bit of coconut in a, oil into a pan and, and add in some mustard seeds, a little bit of cumin and a little turmeric and get that going. A little bit of garlic, a little bit of ginger, maybe. Um, and then I can put almost anything in there, mm -hmm. you know, from onions and cabbage to, you know, Brussels sprouts to Bell peppers, um, to, peppers to uh, anything. I can put almost anything in there. Um, one of my favorite things to do 
is, and you can kind of go either sort of Italian or sort of, um, you know, more, um, you know, Indian or Thai or, um, you know, or like Szechuan. I love to do, I will do like a mix of um, raw and cooked. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do is I'll have a pan. I will start with like some, some sort of aromatic, usually onion, garlic, um, either ginger or, you know, depending on the direction I'm going. A little bit of Oil, whether that be you know olive oil if I'm going Italian or or coconut oil if I'm going um, more Eastern, um, and I will kind of saute down the um, the aromatics, and I'll put in um, maybe some you know some chopped pepper or what you know something like that like cook that a little bit, and then I will take a bunch of greens. Um, and like, it's usually, you know, anything from kale to uh, right now, kale is so cheap right now. Mm -hmm. Organic kale is like a buck 29 for a bunch. I just bought it like, and not like at like super cheap grocery store, like a buck 29. Like really? You can't afford a dollar 29 for a big Mm -hmm. old head of kale? Yes, please. Um, (laughs) so winter is a great time for kale. So then I'll take a bunch of greens and I wash them and then I chop them up and I keep the water on them. And right when I turn off the stove on my pan, I put it in, I cover it, and I let it just wilt down. Wilt just yeah. a tiny bit. Yeah. And so, like, the bottom part gets more wilty yeah. um, than the top part. So it's kind of like half salad, half not. Right. So, um, and if I'm if I'm going to put a number on it, I'm going to say it's 51% raw vegan. All right. And 49% <laughs> cooked. Um, but, like, that's one yeah. of my favorite go-tos. Like, yeah. I do that. The other thing that I love to do, and it's not raw, but... But it is um, it is vegan. I love I love um, hummus and tahini, like mm. coating vegetables. Yeah, yeah. And then I roast them Ooh. with that. So I do that. Like I coat them and then I roast them like broccoli Ooh. or whatever. So I do a lot of that, like coating them. Um, and then I use a lot of like nutritional yeast to sprinkle yeah. on because that gives, you know, it gives that a little cheesy, bit of that cheesy yeah. vibe. It's really kind of more nutty for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, if I'm craving like Italian and cheese – I'm sorry, nutritional yeast doesn't 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 scratch that itch for me. I totally get you. But here's you know here's here's the thing is that you know it's you know it's all about I think you know balance and this it's it's really about really understanding what our defaults are and just having a few recipes in our hip pocket. Right. You know, not everybody has to be 51 percent or 100 percent or right, whatever. Right. Absolutely. But isn't it great to have one or two yeah. or three recipes? You know, I do my. Um, my eggplant and um, white bean um, meatballs with sauce, and that like on, like my kids love it. Like That's you know, awesome. you know, you can do that one day a week, and you're gonna save money because right. beans and eggplant are cheaper than meat. You know, so it's just so that's all you use in them, or like obviously there's some other yeah, ingredients yeah, in there, but that's the base. Yes, and there's egg in there to keep okay. it together. You right, know, right. so it's 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 not yeah. vegan. Yeah, um, that is zero percent vegan. But that's it's but, vegetarian. But it's though, right? yeah, yeah, so it's meat free. Yeah, so it's not you know, and you could do like you know um, other binders like you could For do sure. probably flax Flaxian. egg or whatever. So you know, there's certainly ways around it. Totally. Um, but I think that this idea that if, if someone is sort of interested in plant-based eating or just eating more plants, let's just say that. Yes. Right? I love what Michael Pollan says mm-hmm. about, you know, um, you know, about eating food, mostly plants. Yes. You know, and I, I love that. I think that he's on to how our bodies are mm-hmm. made. You know, it, the, money's not a reason. You can tell me that you don't want to, that you don't care, that you, you – lots of things. Money isn't one of them. Right. And I think even looking at the dirty dozen where certain things are more important to buy organic right. than others, yes, thanks you don't for have that to up. spend a whole lot of money on organic produce when you can buy some things conventional 
But I have to say, like, I, I really, although, like, my personal choices are to eat how I eat, I have so much respect for people like yourself that are also making recipes out of a variety of ingredients because there's no one way for everybody to eat. Different bodies respond to different things, and I totally respect that. And I didn't grow up being raw vegan my whole life either, so I think one of the real great pleasures that I got to experience was trying a lot of different foods. And although a lot of them didn't necessarily agree with my body best, Mm -hmm. it was still really nice to be able to savor all the different ingredients. And I know I've said this before, but, you know, different cultures in different areas of the world, they make the best out of what they have. And I think getting to taste the recipe of those cultures is also tasting that. Um, My parents were just recently in Cancun and they were telling me about some of the cultural food that they had there that Mm -hmm. was very simple. And it was, you know, they just, they had masa and they were literally making tortillas with the woman in her home. And she gave them this soup that might be really simple, but it was tasty and they enjoyed it. And it might've not been, you know, Michelin star, you know, whatever, but they, they respected that. And they had that appreciation for this woman is making the best out of maybe the potatoes and the rice and the beans and the, bit of meat that she has and stuff and my parents aren't vegan um you know it's just like having that respect and I feel like that's always really foremost important to me and I feel for me it's kind of shifted more towards supporting local organic farmers and really having a lot of respect for the produce that they grow and the work that they do for the community and growing good food but I think that there's there's a breadth of amazing options that people can choose from and it's an individual choice for wherever people are in their life it's not necessarily better or worse or anything like that it's just very individual for each person to choose what they get to include in their in their dietary regime and what works best for them yeah i think you're right and i think that um whatever we choose to eat um and however we choose to eat um for me it's really important that we collectively that we come at it from a place of gratitude, yeah. Um, and for me, with my family, coming at it from a place of this is really a gift from God. So for for me, like I in my mind, I'm always saying um, in my head, like when I look at food, I'm like do I see God in this? Mm. And if I can't see God in it, it's maybe too far down the process chain. Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Artificial sweetener, whatever, something. You know, that's like meant to fool my body into thinking I've had something sweet, but not really. Ha, ha, ha. Joke's on you. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, what am I, out to fool God? <laughs> you know, like I, I want the sweetness of maple syrup, but none of the calories. You know, like that, I just, I don't know. It, it's, it's, I, that's like on the other extreme of like, I don't know. I don't, I don't see God in it. No, I just it don't. It also comes down to like ethics also, I think, in a certain respect. And I think it's, it's, it's. It's ethics and really accepting that food is um, it's part of nature and mm-hmm. we're part of nature and mm-hmm. we're part of this bigger ecosystem. Right. So anyway, I think that's sort of the sort of the the most important thing for me is to accept and lean into the fact that we are part of this and that we're participating in this whole system of food and um, and soil and earth and environment and um, and honoring that. So what is your message to the youth in regards to enjoying what's on their plate and making the best recipe out of their life with the ingredients that they've been given? I I really do believe what I'm about to tell you is going to sound a little bit Pollyanna, 
but I really do believe it. It's I don't mean it as a you know as an idea that will have people rolling their eyes. I really do believe that the secret is to be happy with what we have mm-hmm. and to be grateful for what we have. Um, and it's amazing how when I really get grateful for what I have, it truly opens up space for everything else to sort of flow in. And what's tricky about that is, is then then one might think, well, in that case, I'm going to pretend to be grateful for what I have and hope that then the universe will give me what I actually really want. And, and the universe, um, God, the universe, nature is smarter than that. It really, the secret is really to get happy with what you have and to really love what you have um, today. Not what you're working for and going to get tomorrow, but where you are today, how we are today, how we feel today, how our genes fit today, um, what our legs look like today, what our, what our house size is today, what our closet looks like today, whatever, how we are really today. When we get really grateful for that, that's, that's sort of the secret to it all. Um, and I really do believe in things as simple as a gratitude journal where you write down two or three things that you're grateful for uh, every day. The habit of gratitude is probably the single habit that has brought me the most joy in my life um, and the most sort of kind of peace. And isn't that really what we want? We want to just feel good, you know, today as we get up and go about our day and um, so the habit of gratitude. So it's not a, um, my answer isn't like a work ethic of like, oh, you know, do this and then you'll get that. It's, you know what, look around where we are today and get really grateful for that. And if that, you know, means writing it down, writing, you know, small stuff, big stuff, whatever. It's amazing how if you write down, if you do a gratitude journal, have you done one for any length yes, of time? Absolutely. It's amazing how you start looking for things to be yes. grateful for. And it's fun to go back and read it, too. It is. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it, it's it's amazing how you find yourself just grateful for so much, you know, way more than five things. You end up the day with way too many things. But it doesn't matter because you've been grateful for them in the moment of the day. So if I could say one thing, you know, to to sort of enjoy the ingredients on your plate, as it were, to use your metaphor— it would be to be grateful for those ingredients, even the stuff you think aren't really all that super duper. The habit of gratitude is is a really powerful one. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Vibrant Raw Living. Remember that you are just as worthy, deserving, and capable of achieving and maintaining your dreams as much as anyone else. If you have found this podcast useful, please subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and share it with your friends and family. You can find links to my Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Pinterest, and Snapchat in the show notes below. And if you'd like to follow me for updates, which I only share via email, come on over to my website at victoriamadian.com. I love you and I'm wishing you a wonderful day. Go out there and discover your infinite potential. 